Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I'm here with my first cup of coffee. Soothing and creamy and delicious. Today is Tuesday, December 31st, the final day of 2019. And, you know, can I say good riddance? <laughs> I, just, I don't feel like 2019 was a very good year. Uh, that's probably not fair. There were good things about it. But, um, boy, sure going out with a whimper. And I promise I'm not going to spend the entire episode today talking about RWA. Frankly, I'm exhausted <laughs> of dealing with the RWA thing and kind of brokenhearted, too. I just really hate seeing what's happening. Um, for those not in the thick of it or wisely abstaining from the foul thick of it. Um, we got a missive yesterday that went out to all members on our email that was um, basically doubling down <laughs> or tripling down. Um, it's mind boggling. It is just so confusing. Um, it's very unclear who is behind these messages. Uh, they are not signed. They are signed RWA staff and board, but we know that there are probably like, <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, officially there's like six board members left, including acting president Damon Swade. And it's, they're all being very quiet. We don't know if all of those board members are working in concert. We don't know which staff are actually working right now. But this letter that went out yesterday was, um, ah, it was, <laughs> I don't know, it was like something that would come out of the Trump White House. It was just crazy. Uh, basically said nothing other than to stick to their guns on their previous actions, which, um, you know, not acknowledging that people are unhappy about it and not acknowledging that they're going, basically saying that they're not going to change their stance. Um, and actually slapping at everybody for <laughs> talking about it. Um, made reference to previous board members and other members, you know, saying hurtful things on the internet. And I just can't help but think that a whole lot of this is Damon basically pitching a temper tantrum. He's used to being beloved. Maybe he doesn't know how to handle not being beloved. You know, and frankly, all I can say is I am so grateful for the previous board members and presidents who have been speaking up because they are lending some much-needed wisdom and perspective to this situation. And previous President Helen K. Diamond, you know, went on Twitter and begged Damon to just say that they were wrong and fall on his sword. And that's clearly not what's going to happen. So we'll see. Um, I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, the petition is filed. It may take some time for it to play out. And I'm just not going to take any other action until then. I'm just going to do my best to stick to my guns and lend... Uh, my support to the efforts being made. 
<clears throat> and they did say in this letter that they were going to have a legal audit of the situation, and I don't think they understand that we do not want the <laughs> current board hiring the legal audit. That's not how you do this, people. So, you know, it's always interesting because some presidents have the urge to operate in a shroud of secrecy, and that's essentially what's happening here. I remember quite a few years back when Diane Kelly was president, and there were things that happened uh, that I actually had board members calling me about stuff and saying, yeah, Diane has forbidden us from talking about this because she believes we should keep these things secret. And I think that that's rarely a good impulse. Um, secrecy leads to obfuscation, right? So, um, it, really, I'm going to have to step away if I'm going to finish this book because it, it really is draining in remarkable ways. So, that said, I did make progress on the fate of the Tala yesterday. I think I can be done by Friday. I think I've still got about 6,000 words to write, and I feel like it's pretty tight so far. Um, I'm back up to the most recent and rough sections, and it's it's falling into place. I think it's okay. So we shall see, right? Other than that, um, a few things I've done. I read Demi Moore's memoir. Um, is it called Inside Out? I didn't, you know how bad I am. I always forget to look up the titles of things. Let's see if I can see what the title is. Do, 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 do. My mind is kind of blank here. I couldn't even think of what I want. Let's look it up on Amazon. Uh, my mom had read it. She'd gotten it from her local library. So she had, oh, Inside Out. Is that what I said? Yeah, it's Demi Moore's Inside Out. Uh She'd gotten it from her library and had the hardback. So I read it while I was there over Christmas. That was kind of nice to sit with the paper book and read. And it was a very interesting memoir. Um, you know, Demi Moore really had a, a heck of a difficult early life, and really all of her life. I mean, I think that she um, doesn't, you know, it became pretty clear over time that she didn't really know how to handle emotional difficulty in her life, which her parents didn't know how to do. Her parents were addicts and it sounds like, you know, emotionally underdeveloped and dragged the kids from here to there. So what was striking to me about listening to, listening to, I guess being, I, I, I guess why, why I said that is listening to Demi's voice because it was very interesting being inside of her head, um, which I thought this memoir did a good job. She, you know, almost certainly worked with a ghostwriter, but it was very compellingly and intimately told from her perspective. And it was interesting that she never seemed to have 
a real sense of how strikingly beautiful and charismatic she is. She talks a lot about insecurity about her body and eating disorders and how being nude in movies uh, would sort of send her into this spiral of working out and um, dieting and so forth because she was so worried about how she would look on screen, which you know I can only imagine what that's like. I often give thanks that my career does not depend on me having a flat tummy because I don't think I would like <laughs> having that kind of pressure. But it was interesting, and she talks about ch acting challenges, you know, like being in movies with these really tremendous actors and feeling the pressure of that. But she never really seems to get what, um, why she was such a phenom, or even to, I guess this is the striking part, to realize that she has been such a superstar. And I think that that's an interesting thing about fame and success is that from the inside you become so focused on maybe on the failures or the unrealized goals that you're not really aware that from the outside people perceive the successes. And where we see Demi Moore as, or at least I always have um, seen her as this very beautiful woman and a superstar actress. And I have been going back and watching a few movies. My mom and I watched St. Elmo's Fire. And then last night I watched uh, We're No Angels, which I apparently had never seen. I didn't recognize it with um, Robert De Niro and Sean Penn from the late 80s. I won't say it was a terrible movie. <laughs> it was not a great movie. It was funny to see De Niro playing such a bumbling guy. But it was interesting to see to me and her the power of her performance um, in Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, where she very famously does the single tear, where she says, I was never good. I was great. And it, she talks about doing Charlie's Angels in the memoir, too, that Drew Barrymore called her up and talked her into doing it. And had, it took a few calls. She didn't want to. And then it ended up being such a great experience for her working on the movie with the other gals. She's one of the most positive experiences she's ever had making a movie, which is interesting too, because, you know, we forget, or at least I forget that, um, you know, celebrities like that working on a movie is part of their job. And it's um, a different creative experience every time working with different teams and some are more positive and, um, you know, fill the well better than others. Others just drain you. So I thought that it was interesting, though, that she, you know, talks about the times that she took time off from doing movies or where she, um, things were not going well or she felt like she didn't do a good job or movies that were a bomb or that she got a lot of grief for. I remember her getting so much pushback on G.I. Jane at the time. <clears throat> and she talks about how painful that was. And I'm, I would like to rewatch that too. But I do remember that that was, um, you know, again, I think that one's 80s. Shall we look? Uh, it was 80s or early 90s. And, 
you know, it was part of that um, feminism backlash. Boy, were people mad about that movie, you know, and they just, oh, 97, so later than I thought. Uh, yeah, you know, about the a woman becoming a Navy SEAL. And I remember everyone talked about, you know, how, you know, Demi really worked out for that role. And people talked about how she was so, oh, mannish. Uh, I remember all the guys talking about that. Oh, she was so ugly and her, you know, shaving her head. And it, it was an interesting education in male expectations of female decorativeness. Because Demi is such a beautiful woman that I think... Um, a lot of the guys felt kind of personally betrayed that she ceased to be decorative and sexy and soft. So anyway, my point, and I did have one, is that it's it's interesting for me to to remember that how my career looks from the outside is different from how I perceive it. Because for me, I look at the the unrealized goals. I look at what I don't, what I haven't gotten, the authors who are, have greater successes than I do. And I'm sure it's the same for Demi, you know, because everybody's life and career always looks better from the outside, right? <laughs> you, you always think, well, dang. But, you know, that's just part of life, right? Yeah, it's part of being human, that professional jealousy. So it's it's good for me. It was when it, it was an interesting experience to to read Demi's story and sort of experience life from inside her head. I have also finished officially finished reading all eight Bridgerton books. I went all the way through Julia Quinn's books. It was very interesting to I love reading authors uh, who've done a complete series like that over time. It was very interesting to see the way in which Julia's work grew. Her craft grew over the course of the books. <clears throat> and, and yet she has a very consistent quality. I, you know, especially reading on the Kindle, I can see percentages. And I'm always very entertained to see which beats happen at which percentages. And boy, Julia's midpoints are just spot on. <laughs> I would think, okay, this is the midpoint of the story. And I'd look at the percentage and boom. And she's a pretty meticulous um, writer structurally. And it was interesting to observe the things that I felt like were consistent. Um, I, I guess I want to say weaknesses, which probably isn't fair. Things that I think she, little ticks she has that I think she could improve upon. And it's, it's, that's less of a criticism of Julia than a reminder for myself. Because I'm forever um, wanting to see if I can improve my own little weird ticks. So, um, let's see what else. I think tonight, um, David's going to be out driving for New Year's Eve, making all the monies. So I am going to stick close to home. I'm going to buy me a bottle of nice champagne 
And I think I'm going to binge Virgin River, which is the Netflix series based on Robin Carr's contemporary romances. I'm very interested to see how they adapted those. I think I've only ever read one of them. I think I read it for the readers, actually, because uh, I don't read tons of contemporary romance these days. And I remember liking it. It was, uh, it was fun. So I'm very interested to see how they adapt it. It's, and then, of course, Bridgerton's is coming out. They, they keep saying 2020. And I have watched the first couple episodes of Soundtrack, which has Leslie Penelope's brother in it. And, I mean, it was like number one on my Netflix trending screen, so I might have watched it anyway. But I was looking forward to reading it, or reading it, watching it. <laughs> you could tell that all forms of media to me are the same. I just breathe them. I was looking forward to watching it, partly because of Leslie, and but it was also interesting. Um, David has no patience for it, I, and I think it's the lip syncing. And Leslie talked about that a little bit on her podcast this week, that some people, it's interesting, some people are really upset by lip syncing, you know, like they're mortally offended by it. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not bothered by lip syncing uh, I would probably a lot of it is much newer music than I am accustomed to even though I do try to keep up with new music so on the one hand I feel like it's good for me because you know I would like to keep up on newer music and I like it but I think I would connect a little bit more if it was a little bit more like um and it's the invidious comparison, right? Like Glee, I, I, emotion, I connect emotionally more to songs that I already know. And so I think that some of those scenes, and, and you know, basically the premise is, is that, you know, like when people are at emotional points in their lives, they sort of go into a fugue state where they do, you know, a song and dance number that, you know, embodies their emotions of the moment. And it's, you know, sort of like the soundtrack of our lives, you know, how we all, um, you know, blast certain music, associate certain songs with emotional points in our lives. So I think that I would jive, jive, is that the wrong word? I would vibe with, I think I would be more into it if I had that emotional connection to the songs already. But, you know, maybe that's because I'm old. Or, you know, not the target audience, hard to say. But I do think, I, I loved the twist at the end of the first episode, and I've watched two episodes now, I think. And I do like it. Um, it's, the other aspect of it is for someone like me who loves romance, I'm trying to think of, okay, this is going to be a spoiler, but we're at 19 minutes anyway. So, you know, go on your way if you don't want to hear a spoiler for this. It's not a huge spoiler, but, um, you know, the, oh, are you gone? Okay. <laughs> the, uh, it's presented as a romance. You Like in the trailers, you could see the romance. But what you discover in that very first episode is that, the romance you see developing um, that that woman has died and that she is why the main character 
who is Leslie Penelope's brother. Um, that's why he's a widow. And so there is that aspect of, you know, the doomed romance, right? I don't really want to... I don't. I can't get invested in their love affair because she's gonna freaking die, people. Um, so, in some ways, that's a miss for my demographic. At the same time, I think it's a very interesting storytelling style. So I'll probably give it a few more episodes. All right, I'm going to go on my way. You all should go on your way. I will see you in 2020. Right. Uh, Jeffy's First Cup of Coffee is part of the Frolic Media Podcast Network. You can find other podcasts you will love at frolic.media slash podcasts. And I will talk to you all on, probably on Thursday, the 2nd. You all take care. Bye-bye.